Welcome to the Fast God Stuff Podcast, where we make biblical theology simple, practical, and fun so that we can love God and others more. I'm Conrad, and my favorite prepackaged snack food is Cheetos. <laughs> Good choice, brother. And I'm Jesse, and my favorite prepackaged snack food is Fritos. Oh, we're like snack brothers. <laughs> We're just two guys hanging out in the studio with our Bibles and guitars. We take just 30 minutes to chat about a theological topic and renew our minds with the good things of Christ. And on this episode, we're going to answer the question, is Christianity anti-science? Two, three, four, is Christianity anti-science? People mistakenly dismiss Christianity as anti-science, and then they toss out biblical truth for no good reason. So here's what happens. They leave themselves with less answers than they started with, and they put themselves in the hands of people like astrophysicists or biologists who, though they're trying to find the meaning of life through scientific experimentation, find out that it actually doesn't deliver. So today we're going to see if Christians are indeed anti-science or if science can help us love God more. So I want to play a clip that illustrates the environment Christians live in when it comes to science. So here's a clip from celebrity astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's the go-to science guy on TV and documentaries. And here he's being interviewed, and he says this about science. Oh, no, one person didn't believe it. Two of them didn't believe in evolution. Uh, you know, the good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. You see, that's the, that's the thing. That's very good. But- so it's not just his statement, but more importantly, the reaction to his statement And this is the environment that Christians face, but his statement is completely false. There's a really subtle error that he makes right at the start, and that is to falsely equate science with fact. So, of course, science is actually a method by which people try to understand the created order. And scientists, though they approach that understanding, that exploration of knowledge in different ways, they sometimes end up with different conclusions. In other words, scientists disagree with themselves about the outcomes of their scientific approach. So science by itself is not properly a synonym for fact. Exactly. And when he used the word science, he really should be using the term scientific method. So science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. And since scientists don't all agree, you can't say science is always right. So when you hear somebody say, I believe in science, they are making this exact error. So what I believe in science really means, though, is I believe scientists are never wrong, even when they disagree on the same thing. But if people can be fooled to equate the word science with the word fact, then that would elevate scientists to be the masters of truth, the new priests of reality. So, we can all agree that the scientific method is useful, but it's only as useful as the scientist behind it. So, as Christians, we actually have no problems with science, with the scientific method, because when science is done properly, based on philosophical facts such as logic, mathematics, and morality, 
we can learn more about the scientific facts of God's own physical creation. So, is the Bible anti-scientific method? Well, of course not. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to study God's own physical creation. Also, without even thinking about it, Christians agree with almost all scientific conclusions across medicine, technology, physics, chemistry. They go to the doctor and the dentist, they use computers, they wear glasses, they take blood pressure medication, they put gas in their cars. So no, Christianity is not anti-science. But if Christians are not anti-science, then why are we accused of being anti-science? Well, it comes down to two major topics. Jesse, what do you think those are? It's probably evolution and the age of the universe. Exactly. So out of the millions of scientific conclusions that Christians agree with without even thinking about it, there are only two that non-Christians tend to bring up, and the age of the earth shouldn't even be on this list. So you'll see non-Christians all the time saying that the Bible says that the earth is only 6,000 years old, but it doesn't. But the confusion is understandable because there are some Christians who do propose that, and these Christians are called young earth creationists. And the reason why a Christian like me, who is considered an old earth creationist, disagree with them is because we disagree on what the Bible says about the six days of creation. So, Jesse, how do we know what the Bible says? One of the ways that we can understand what the Bible actually says is by using some resources to help us return to the original language that it was written in. That often gives us a new kind of clean insight that gives us a particular understanding about what the author actually intended. And there is a fancy little word for this. It's called exegesis. It means explaining the scriptures properly according to what was written. So, because the Bible wasn't actually written in English, in case anybody was confused about that, (laughs) that means that sometimes, and perhaps often, it's helpful to return to the original language of the Bible so that we can get a really clear understanding of what was written. Right. So, the original Hebrew says creation happened in six yom, in six eras, in six ages. So, the Old Testament uses the word yom 67 different times for the general word time, eight different times for the word age, four different times as year, four different times as always, three different times as season. And the creation story alone uses yom in four completely different ways. So to force six yom to only mean six 24-hour days would be an error. So, I personally am fine with the generally accepted date of the universe because the Bible doesn't date creation. But even my young earth creationist friends, who I would disagree with, are still not anti-science. They don't ignore the scientific data. They just interpret the scientific data differently, and they develop other scientific explanations for the geological records. So now this only leaves the big one. Evolution! (laughs) So right off the bat, there's a fatal flaw in saying one believes in the theory of evolution. And that fatal flaw is, there is no one agreed upon theory of the particulars of evolution. With other theories like general relativity, there's an agreement on what the theory actually is, what the details are. Evolution, rather, is a vast scientific field of thousands of scientists proposing and disagreeing on hundreds of different theories through scientific journals, debates, and conferences. So to say you believe in evolution, that's really saying you believe in every single evolutionary scientist's theories, even if they contradict each other. 
So here are the three major categories that evolutionary scientists fight over. One, how evolution started. Scientists don't know how life started, and they have multiple competing theories for the origin of life. Two, how evolution works. Genetics, DNA, and especially epigenetics are such new fields and are barely understood that any of the multiple theories that they're offering are really just vague guesses as to the actual mechanism needed for new, better body plans. And then three, the fossil record itself doesn't even support evolution. So, they have competing theories to explain things like the Cambrian explosion, where thousands and thousands of species of all the major animal types all appeared out of nowhere in the fossil records. So we'll go into depth into all these in a second, but to explain what it's like to simply say you believe in the theory of evolution, we imagine the theory of evolution as a 1970s detective show. Detective Evolution on the scene. Detective Evolution, what's this I hear about you solving the Jenkins murder? Oh, yeah. (laughs) My theory is it was the wife who poisoned him because she was cheating on him, put him in a trunk, and dumped him in the river. Excellent. You sound very confident about your... Oh, my theory is it was his business partner who shot him over money and then dumped him. Off a bridge. So you've narrowed it down to two theories. Or my theory is it was a thief with a bat who was robbing his house and dragged him to the river. So you have three competing theories. It was any combination of these suspects, weapons, or motives, or disposal methods. In some theories, I'm still working on... Detective Evolution, you've done it again. You are brilliant. Detective Evolution is solved. (laughs) You are brilliant. (laughs) So let's just start off with the first of the three main categories of evolution. How did evolution start? How did life begin? And here's the thing. Origin of life scientists have no idea how life started because immediately they run into multiple paradoxes, multiple chicken or egg first scenarios that they can't solve to get life started. You need proteins to make DNA, but you need DNA to make proteins. Another paradox is you need metabolism for reproduction, but you need reproduction for metabolism. And there's more paradoxes. On top of that, they can't explain how you can go from organic molecules to life to self-replicating life. Our friend Neil deGrasse Tyson flat out admits they don't know. We don't know how we went from, we Earth, went from organic molecules, inanimate organic molecules, to self-replicating life. So atheistic evolutionists can't even get evolution off the ground. So let's listen to the origin of life theories covered by an article I found in futurism.com entitled, Abiogenesis, Seven Scientific Theories for the origin of life, and a new one. And really, this just sounds like a ridiculous detective evolution character just winging it. It says, life began beneath the ice, or from electricity, or from space, or this thing called the RNA world, or simple metabolism reactions, or the clay breeding ground, or underwater hydrothermal vents, or a new one by MIT. 
<laughs> so to wrap up the ultimate fatal flaw of atheism, if you say you believe in evolution, you agree with scientists when they say they don't know. So believing in evolution is actually an admission of ignorance. But before we move on to the second fatal flaw of evolution, I wanted to add that there are some Christians who consider themselves what we call theistic evolutionists whose theory is that God used evolution to create humans. However, as the term is used in scientific circles, they wouldn't consider your theory evolutionary at all, because the field of evolutionary science is fundamentally what we call atheistic naturalism, which assumes atheism. So, only unguided physical causes are considered. So they would categorize theistic evolutionists as creationists, where God caused the universe, caused life, and then guided that life to make something into the image of God. So the initial debate is actually over causality. So either God set things in motion, or he didn't. So the second fatal flaw of evolution is that it's completely based on an unproven and illogical assumption. It starts off with the assumption that God doesn't exist and therefore couldn't be the cause of the universe, therefore life, and therefore humans. So it's like if a detective shows up to a possible crime scene, they arrive with an open mind where everyone's a suspect. But if you start off with an assumption that one particular person did it before even looking at the evidence, such as fossil records or the complexity of self-replicating life, you'll force unsupported guesses as explanations. Detective Evolution on the scene. Detective Evolution, here's the thief we caught killing the homeowner. We have security footage, the knife, and blood. It's a slam dunk. Well, you know, with murders, I always assume it's the wife. Well, in this case, it can't be. The thief is a foot taller and 200 pounds heavier than she is. Well, the only way this is possible is if she kidnapped this innocent man, disguised herself as him with an elaborate mask and huge costume. And the video is actually of her overpowering her husband while in this massive costume. Then she dragged this innocent man here then planted all the evidence on him, and then disposed of any evidence that might tie her to this crime. It's always the wife. Detective Evolution, you've done it again. You are brilliant. Detective Evolution, case solved. (laughs) (laughs) You've done it again. So if you assume an incorrect suspect before even looking at the evidence... You'll then interpret the evidence incorrectly, which then forces you to come up with a series of improbable explanations to explain the evidence. So to believe that atheistic evolution is your only suspect, well then you first have to prove atheism, which literally no one can. We do a deep dive into atheism in a different episode, so check that out. So atheism has to have some answer to the beginning of the universe, Which it doesn't. We don't know what was around before the universe. So, Neil deGrasse Tyson actually admits ignorance to the two atheistic assumptions of evolution. How evolution started, and more fundamentally, how the universe started. 
but he still has the audacity to call evolution a fact. So the second fatal flaw of evolution is that it's a dishonest methodology of assuming a suspect that they can't even prove exists before even looking at the evidence. Which brings us to the second category of things atheistic scientists can't explain, which is the fossil record. But before we look at the fossil record, which is the actual physical evidence, let's see what Christians believe and see which view lines up more with the fossil records. So, what does Christianity believe? First, unlike atheism, we can actually prove the existence of our suspect, God, which we go into depth in a bunch of previous episodes. So, the Bible categorizes creation into six phases, into six eras. And it was in the final two eras that God sprinkled new species of animals. And in the final era of creation, God created mammals and humans. So, what Christians should expect to see is new species in the fossil records popping up without precursors. And this sprinkling of new species of animals through the final two eras could have happened over the course of hundreds of millions of years because the Bible doesn't specify. But if Darwinian evolution was real, we should see life expand slowly like a branch from one life form to two, then to three, then to thousands and millions slowly with no gaps. So all we have to do is look at the fossil records, right? And if we are honest detectives... With all suspects in mind, will let the evidence lead us to the suspect. So, what do scientists find? They find what's called the Cambrian explosion, which happened 541 million years ago. So, Wikipedia sums all the literature up on this pretty well. And I'm going to read from Wikipedia now. This is what they believe. Before the Cambrian explosion, most organisms were relatively simple, composed of individual cells or small multicellular organisms, occasionally organized into colonies. The Cambrian explosion, or the Cambrian radiation, fancy, was an event approximately 541 million years ago in the Cambrian period when practically all major animal phyla started appearing in the fossil record. So they say all major phyla started appearing in the fossil records, meaning there weren't these animal phyla before this period. However, evolution predicts what's called gradualism, that between the first bacteria three billion years before the Cambrian explosion, there should have been three billion years worth of animals and species leading up to the animals in the Cambrian. But the fossil record does not show ancestor fossils for the tens of thousands of new species found in the Cambrian. And from a Christian point of view, Perhaps the Cambrian explosion is what the Bible is referring to when talking about the fifth era of creation. I know what you're thinking. Somebody tell me what National Geographic thinks about this. Well, you're in luck. So here's what they say. The Cambrian period produced the most intense burst of evolution ever known. Evolution burst. The Cambrian explosion saw an incredible diversity of life emerge, including many major animal groups alive today. And the thing was, Darwin was well acquainted with this idea of the Cambrian explosion, but he was not down with that. And we know this because in The Origin of Species, the sixth edition, if you're following along at home, he writes this, and I quote, To the question why we do not find rich fossiliferous deposits belonging to these assumed earliest periods prior to the Cambrian system, I can give no satisfactory answer, end quote. 
So basically one sentence, he proves that he's not doing science and he actually uses the word assume. He's presupposing something that hasn't been proven. His universal common ancestor theory, which he predicted, should show fossils prior to the Cambrian explosion. And here's the second reason he's not really doing science, and that is because even though science is supposed to be based in evidence, Darwin flat out admits his own theory contradicts the evidence. So he makes an assumption, not based in fact, to come up with a theory that contradicts facts. And somehow everyone looks up to this guy. So now atheists have so many competing theories to explain the Cambrian explosion that they have to be categorized into groups of theories, environmental, developmental, and ecological. And related to their assumption, evolutionists are forced to interpret species in the fossil records that have similar design to be ancestors and descendants. Except similarity in the record has a much better explanation, a common designer. Like a 2001 Toyota Camry didn't give birth to a 2002 Toyota Camry just because they're really similar. <laughs> no, they had a common designer. Right. Okay, so let's get into the third set of competing theories. First, there is competing theories for the origin of life. Second, there are competing theories about the Cambrian explosion and the fossil record. And the third is, there are competing theories of how animals actually evolve. So most people were raised to believe that evolution is powered by natural selection. Except, no one believes that anymore, and I'll quote from them. Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection provided a selection mechanism for evolution, but not a trait transfer mechanism. Basically, he didn't know about DNA, and that's why no one calls themselves Darwinists anymore, but they call themselves Neo-Darwinists. So like most people, you might say like, oh well, natural selection and survival of fittest seem reasonable, and yeah, they do, but only in one sense. Natural selection is simply a filter. Whatever lives has offspring. And whatever dies, doesn't. Uh, obviously, no one other than Darwin could have ever thought of that one, right? <laughs> so if a bunch of blonde bunnies die in a particular location, well, then you're left with more brunette bunnies who have offspring. So eventually, you'll have more brunette bunnies. However, the only thing this natural selection filter has done is reduce the variation within a species within a certain location, such as a particular island in the Galapagos. So everyone can agree with that, but... Reducing the variation within a species is actually the opposite of evolution. But Darwin makes his famous leap that even neo-Darwinists don't believe today. He turns that filter of natural selection into a mechanism to create new useful organs, new what we call body plans. So when modern genetics and DNA came into the scene, it was obvious that a natural selection filter wasn't an actual mechanism for new genetic instructions. So they brought in the idea of mutation, mistakes in the code. But mutate what exactly? And how much? And when in the embryonic developmental stage should a mutation happen? And is it even possible to get a new, better body plan with just mutation to DNA? But since genetics and especially epigenetics, are such new fields, scientists don't even understand them well enough to propose fully formed theories to make new body plans. What scientists do know, through actual experiments with bacteria and fruit flies, is they can't even intentionally alter DNA to create new, better body plans. And if it's impossible to intentionally alter code to make more useful body plans, 
then adding random mistakes through mutation is infinitely more impossible. So Jesse, if you take your phone's computer code and start randomly changing the code, what do you think is going to happen? Well, it's definitely not going to work properly. I don't know. It's going to butt dial everybody or just completely crash or order a bunch of food from Grubhub. Who knows what it's going to do, but it's not going to work right. Right. But for evolution to work, you don't need just any mutation. You need a new, better, fully functioning app. And there are infinitely more ways of crashing the code than to somehow coordinate a bunch of different genes to alter protein production to create new, useful body plans and organs. And things are so bad for neo-Darwinism that there are some atheist scientists that say neo-Darwinism has failed and are calling for a new atheistic fundamental theory such as the third way. Here's what the atheistic evolutionist James Shapiro says. Neo-Darwinism ignores much contemporary molecular evidence and invokes a set of unsupported assumptions about the accidental nature of heredity variation. Moreover, some neo-Darwinists have elevated natural selection into a unique creative force that solves all the difficult evolutionary problems without a real empirical basis. So, what does someone really mean when they say they believe in evolution? What they're saying is, I place my faith in an atheistic scientific community that ultimately says, we don't know. So Jesse, why does any of this matter? It matters because it sounds like what we're saying is that the atheists, they know there's some transcendent power that the universe is organized and worthy of study and there's something that can be discerned from it. And yet, they don't want to have anything to do with God. If only the Bible said something about this to let us know this was actually the case. Oh, wait, it did. Because Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says this, For what can be known about God is plain to all humanity, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And here's how we know what has happened when you look at the universe and you decide to push away from God. Here's what Paul tells us. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, which is exactly what we're talking about. And their hearts became foolish and darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. So in other words, Paul explains exactly what we see going on here. And that is when we push God away, even as we think that we are becoming super smart and intellectual, what we find is that we cannot answer these basic questions. And the more we try to answer these basic questions without God, the more foolish we sound. And a really great example of that was, you might remember that Watson and Crick were two dudes that discovered DNA. And when they discovered DNA, they found that it was so brilliantly constructed that they realized that something beyond evolution had caused this to be. But they were atheists, so they were unwilling to let themselves go using the scientific method to a place that God was the one who created DNA. And so, where they ended up to overcome these huge hurdles that they couldn't explain is that in his book called Life Itself, Crick explained that where DNA came from 
was aliens. It was shipped to Earth billions of years ago in spaceships by supposedly more evolved and therefore more advanced alien beings. Now, which of those sounds more ridiculous? That God created the heavens and the Earth, or that aliens in spaceships spread DNA spores all over the Earth millions of years ago? So, Jesse, what would you say to the atheist who might be listening today? Well, first I would say, welcome. I'm so glad you're listening. And here's why. Because as people, as human beings, we're all seeking after truth. And that's a real thing that we're after. And the Bible tells us the truth about this world. And so we're all seeking for the same things. One, to know where we came from. Two, to know what our purpose is. And three, to understand what it means when we die here on earth. And the Bible gives us all of those answers in the most cogent, systematic framework. So it really is the answer to all of these questions about life. And when we test it and we read it and we go before God seeking his truth, we find that he provides all the answers that we need. So bottom line, are Christians anti-science? The Christian is not against science. The only thing the Christian is providing distinction on is where we came from. That our God is actually a God who has created an ordered universe, which is exactly science's jam to understand the created regular order of things. That comes from God. And so here we find that Christianity is right on board with most of science, which actually causes us to have greater appreciation and praise for who God is and what he has given us in this amazing created world. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. So, tell a friend about this episode, and remember to subscribe to the Fast God Stuff podcast. Fast God Stuff is a proud (laughs) member of the Society of Rome Podcasters. And please check out FastGodStuff.com for all kinds of content that will help you solve gruesome murder. Until next time, love God, love others. That's it. Jesse, you've done it again. <laughs> <laughs>